Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we begin, I, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might really, really enjoy. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using Internet trolls and hackers and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel this, this giant mystery with the help of those who know best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters even a former Russian KGB agent. Join Europe Bureau Chief of Global News, Jeff Semple. He goes on a journey to unravel how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. You can listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying the ongoing history of new music. Do it. Trust me, you'll love it. Okay, 496, 497, 498, 498. Hey, you're right. We've done 499 shows. That would make this... The 500th one-hour episode of the ongoing history of new music. Yeah, I've been telling you that for a while now. You know, we should kind of celebrate, do something, you know, something kind of cool. Hold on, hold on, I got an idea. Hey, Craig, do you want to come in here for a second? Yeah, what do you want? So you were the technical producer for what? The first 110 episodes of the ongoing history, right? Yeah, that's right. It was awful. Let me tell you, Rob, I couldn't take it. I, I had to get out. So how have you been handling this never-ending personal hell? Uh, you know, pretty much Zoloft and Scotch. But then again, you know, look at the bright side. I'll be dead soon, and it'll be fine, sweet bliss. There. I just organized a staff reunion. Are you happy? No. No, seriously. The, the show has been running continuously through 500 episodes since early 1993. That's That's got to be worth something. Well, you, here's an idea. Why don't we do one of those those uh, flashback things, you know, like they do in The Simpsons when they get tired of ideas or something? Well, here's an idea. Alan, we could uh, we could indulge your vanity and have you reminisce about your favorite moments. Oh, no, 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 no. I know, I know. We can have some people come in and offer testimonials about, ooh, what a difference the ongoing history has made in my life. Ooh, look, I'm a smart guy now when it comes to trivia. <laughs> Or, or maybe we could just focus on the music and examine how much the sounds and people and technology have changed over the last dozen years. I mean, that would be cool. Not much has changed here at the ongoing history of new music, has it, Rob? No. Well, what about a roast? We could round up a bunch of people in the hallways and spend the next hour insulting the host. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We could poke him with a stick and, you know what, I'll grab out some of those uh, some of those outtakes, you know, when he, when, he, when he screws up and we have to edit him down. That's always good fun. Oh, just go at him until he breaks down sobbing. Oh, perfect. Tell you what, you get the people, I'll sharpen the stick. Meet you in five minutes. Done. Seriously, guys. Guys. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross.
All right, he wants the retrospective thing, doesn't he? Yep. You know, it's clear to me he's obviously run out of ideas. You know what? Let's give him a couple. Roll that tape from uh, February 28th, 1993. Roll tape. I love the sound of that, my friend. Wow, actual reel-to-reel recording tape. How old school. This is how it's really done back in my day. (sighs) Does this machine still work? (laughs) The rats haven't eaten all the wires. You know what? Hit play. Let's see what happens. Welcome to the ongoing history of new music. I'm Alan Cross, and it's going to be our mission to track what happened to music between punk and the present. Now think about it. Think about how much the new music scene has changed over the years. It started with bands like the Ramones and the Sex Pistols and Blondie. And now thanks to them and many others, we have groups like the Chili Peppers and Pearl Jam, R.E.M., Ministry, Smashing Pumpkins, Jesus Jones, and, and thousands more. But how did we get here? What happened between the jam and Jane's addiction? What do the dead boys have to do with Depeche Mode? And while we're at it, what was so important about the Sex Pistols anyway? All these questions have answers. Here's one. A computer operator was waiting for a train on the morning of December 2nd, 1976, and he was thinking about the Sex Pistols. They had been on a popular TV show the night before and had said a couple of bad words. Now, this had caused quite a scandal. All of Britain was talking about it. Terrible, terrible, these young men on TV. But this guy thought it was great. These guys had shaken up the system. And on that ride to work, he decided that he didn't want to be a data entry clerk. He wanted to be involved in whatever it was that the Sex Pistols embodied. The attitude, the anger, the energy. Shortly thereafter, an inspired Declan McManus quit his computer job, picked up a guitar, and changed his name to Elvis Costello. And that is how this whole thing started, back on February 28th, 1993. Hello, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the 500th episode of the Ongoing History of New Music. When I was assigned this project in late 1992, I was assigned it, I didn't dream this up, I can't take the credit, I had no idea that I would still be doing it this many years later, especially when you consider that it's all the result of of a fluke decision. Here's the story. I don't know if I've ever told this before. In late 1992, management decided that they wanted someone to do a one-hour program designed to put all this new music of the time into some kind of context. Remember that this was the golden age of Nirvana and Pearl Jam and the Smashing Pumpkins and Lollapalooza when it was good. It was obvious that something big was happening in the world of rock. All these new bands and sounds and styles and attitudes were all coming in at once. Somebody should try and make sense of it all. Now, for a variety of reasons, not all of which were entirely uh, benevolent, that job was assigned to me, the only history major they could find in the building. I can't go into the whole story, but let me tell you something. Because of the circumstances involved, I was not a heavy guy. I was not. In fact, when this all came down, I was probably (laughs) one of the most miserable people on the planet. But it came down to this. I had no choice. Either accept this new position, this new task, this new challenge, or go work at the nearest all-night drive-thru. That was, that was honestly the situation. The only thing to do was to make the best of it and to make it work. And I still remember sitting down with a pad of paper in my living room trying to make some notes for the very first show. 
At the time, there was almost zero historical writing on alternative music. The only sources were articles and old magazines and boxes of stuff dropped off by record companies and some year-end best-of charts. So after an awful January of trying to make sense of everything, the very first ongoing history show ran. And the date was February 28th, 1993. Something big happened on November 6th, 1975. Although at the time, no one really had any idea of what was going on. It took place in London at an art school called St. Martin's. Thursday night, small upstairs room, about a dozen people there. No one was expecting an opening act. They were all there to see the headliners, a group called Bazooka Joe that featured a singer by the name of Adam Ant. When that first band came on, they lasted about songs. That was how long it took before the school's social programmer decided that everyone had heard enough and pulled the plug. Shut them down. The name of that band was the Sex Pistols. And despite the fact that their first live gig wasn't much of a hit, music was never to be quite the same. This is the ongoing history of new music on 102.1 The Edge. You know that musical theme has been around since the beginning too? I get a lot of questions about that theme. It was created by a dude named Amin Batia, a guy who does a lot of movies and TV scores. It's kind of cool. So what was going on in February of 1993? Well, the Smashing Pumpkins were working on their second album, Siamese Dream, which would be released that July. Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam arrived home from L.A. where he just participated in a Rock for Choice concert. Hackers on an old pre-internet computer network called Prodigy were busy trying to steal information about Depeche Mode's new album, Songs of Faith and Devotion, which wasn't scheduled for release for another month and a half. Now, before you get the wrong idea, these, these hackers weren't trying to download songs because you couldn't do that back then. All they had were these awful dial-up modems that really couldn't do much. All they managed to do was get some text files of track listings and some early unpublished reviews. And the record companies freaked out about that. Boy, if they only knew what was coming later in the decade. Other big music news from early 1993. People were beginning to talk about a new band from Oxford, England called Radiohead. They had this song called Creep that was getting some attention. U2 was getting ready to surprise everyone with an unscheduled album called Zuropa that summer. A new group called Oasis had played all of 10 gigs and were trying to pull together enough material for a show in four weeks in Liverpool. They still didn't have a record deal. That would come after a show on May 31st, 1993. And Nirvana was still riding the wave of Nevermind. The day the first ongoing history show ran, the band was recovering from a tour of South America and getting ready to head to Cannon Falls, Minnesota, where they would spend two weeks working on the In Utero album with producer Steve Albini. It would be released that September. Nirvana from 1993. We'll come back to Kurt in a few minutes. Since that first ongoing history show in February of 1993, alternative music has gone through many changes and cycles. When the show first started, the Manchester sound of the Stone Roses and the Happy Mondays was on the way out, and British music was about to enter a period of crisis thanks to the spread of American grunge. 
Grunge was the dominant North American sound of the early and mid-90s, thanks to Nirvana and Pearl Jam. In March of 1994, Soundgarden would release their Super Unknown album, which is the record that really made them superstars. We also had the Stone Temple Pilots and Screaming Trees, Alice in Chains, Mudhoney, Tad, and a ton of others who were all placed under the same grunge umbrella. Meanwhile, other forms of alternative music had started to gain widespread acceptance. Industrial music was hot, thanks to groups like Nine Inch Nails and Ministry. Punk had made a comeback with albums like Green Day's Dookie and The Offspring Smash. R.E.M. was hot again with the best albums of their career. We had new bands like Weezer and Rage Against the Machine and Beck and The Cranberries and The Verve. Alternative music and modern rock was the dominant musical force in the universe. But by the end of 1995, it was obvious that the party was ending. People had moved on. And pop music, you know, the Spice Girls and NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys, all started to grab the attention in North America. Alt-rock was pushed to the margins and began to fragment. This is where we encounter new metal, which in retrospect was an overly aggressive and not-too-bright fusion of heavy metal and hip-hop. Still, it sort of worked for a while, and yes, kids, there, there was a time when we thought that Fred Durst was really pretty damn cool. Rock While North American New Rock was being dominated by the testosterone overdose of New Metal, the British were still wringing out what they could from Britpop, which was their homegrown response to American grunge. You know, Oasis and Blur and Alaska and Suede and all those bands. And then that crashed and burned in a haze of cocaine and heroin. Coinciding with the fall of Britpop was another resurrection of British club culture, this time under the guise of electronica. This, the critics said, was going to be the thing that saved the world of alternative music from ruin at the hands of the Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears and their ilk in the late 1990s. And for a while, it looked like they were going to be right. In July 1997, the Prodigy's Fat of the Land CD debuted at number one on the American charts. So did this mean that electronica was going to remake the musical landscape like grunge did five years earlier? No, but it was a good try. At the start of the new century, we began to move away from electronica and new metal. And for a while, the whole alt-rock scene was, well, let's be honest, pretty adrift. Outside the occasional burst of indie brilliance, you know, the Strokes and the White Stripes and bands like that, things all really did sound the same for a few years, and no real stars emerged. But by late 2002, there was a sense that maybe something was starting to bubble up from the underground again. Some 41 not only sold a ton of records in Canada, but they also sold millions around the world. Not bad for an indie band. Three Days Grace would have a platinum album in America. Lincoln. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Park figured out where new metal went wrong and started selling millions of records. The Chili Peppers came back with their strongest album in years. U2 started making songs that sounded like, uh, 
well, you too again. And then there was this weirdly gentle band out of England called Coldplay that quietly sold more than 15 million albums. By 2004, alt-rock was back with all kinds of new, exciting bands. It was Franz Ferdinand and Modest Mouse and The Killers and Billy Talent and The Stills and Jet, The Yeah Yeah Yeahs and Hot Hot Heat. And now here we are in the fall of 2005, enjoying a year where the biggest rock records were from Nine Inch Nails and The White Stripes and Weezer and Audio Slave and Oasis, Our Lady Peace, Coldplay, Foo Fighters, Green Day, Beck, U2. Which gets me thinking, isn't this sort of where we came in? back in February of 1993. Welcome back to this special episode of the Ongoing History of New Music. This is the 500th episode of the show since its debut back in February of 1993. It has been a long, strange trip so far, and we've lost a few people along the way. Mick Ronson, David Bowie's guitarist and Morrissey's producer, Cancer, April 1993. Kristen Pfaff, drummer for Hole, Drug Overdose, June 1994. Fred Sonic Smith, member of the MC5 and husband of punk priestess Patti Smith, heart attack, November 1994. Brad Noel, singer, Sublime, Drug Overdose, May 1995. Dwayne Gattel, Skinny Puppy, Heroin Overdose, August 1995. Sterling Morrison, guitarist for the Velvet Underground, Lymphatic Cancer, August 1995. Shannon Hoon, singer for Blind Melon, Drug Overdose, October 1995. Michael Hutchins, singer, In Excess, Death by Hanging, for some reason, November 1997. Rob Gretton, manager for New Order and Joy Division, May 1999. Wes Berggren, guitarist for Tripping Daisy, Drug Overdose, October 1999. Joe Strummer of The Clash, Heart Attack, Just Before Christmas 2002. And only one of the original Ramones is still left alive. Joey, Johnny, and Dee Dee are all gone. All we have left is Tommy. There's more, but I think you get the idea. The biggest death story during the run of this program was, of course, the suicide of Kurt Cobain. Kurt was found on a Friday. It was April the 8th, 1994. The Ongoing History Tribute Show, show number 59, ran on the 17th, the following weekend. And if there's one request I get more often than any other, it's to run back the opening sequence of that show. So, before we retire to the vaults one more time, here it is. The Kurt Cobain stuff from show number 59. Kurt Cobain is in the news again. A body has been found in his Seattle home. No indication yet of who it is. Don't know if it's the body is that of a man or a woman. Police are on the scene and an investigation is underway. Last month, the lead singer of Nirvana was hospitalized in Rome for a drug overdose. So 13 minutes after 2 o'clock, uh, I'm Alan Cross. I just want to update you on something that was reported on the news about uh, 13 minutes ago. Uh, police in Seattle say the body of a man in his 20s has been found with a shotgun wound in the head at the home of Kurt Cobain of Nirvana. A police spokesman says the body has been there for about a day. Police say that they'll leave it up to the medical examiner to identify the body. Police say the body was found this morning by an electrician who had been doing some work at the home. He saw the body through a window and police had to break into the cottage above a detached garage where they discovered the man and a suicide note. That's all the details that are available right now, but we'll uh, do our best to find out what's going on. There's a greenhouse above the garage, and I, was, I walked around to the door on the upper side to, uh, to see about uh, getting access to run a wire in the house or in the garage. And I looked in through the glass door, and there's this guy laying there with a shotgun laying on his chest and uh, blood running out of his ear. Well, still no official ID on the body found in Kurt Cobain's Seattle home, but various sources are reporting the body is that of Kurt Cobain. 338, uh, I really don't want to do this. Um, this is the latest from Seattle. 
A record company official says Nirvana lead singer Kurt Cobain shot himself to death at his Seattle home yesterday. Police say Cobain's body was found today with a shotgun wound to the head, a suicide note nearby. He had been recuperating from last month's overdose of painkillers and champagne. His mother says Cobain has been missing for six days. And she says the last time she spoke with her son, she told him not to join the stupid club of other rock stars who had died early. Kurt Cobain was 28. Nirvana, from the very first ongoing history show following Kurt's death in April of 1994. Other milestones over the last 500 episodes. Anniversaries of the deaths of people like Sid Vicious of the Sex Pistols and Ian Curtis of Joy Division, the rise and fall of Lollapalooza, the various attempts at reliving Woodstock, the incarnations of Edgefest. And actually, this would be a good time to talk about the types of topics used on this show. People often ask me, how do I decide what to do with each program? And the answer is honestly, I don't know. I'm not sure. I have to crank out something like 36 one-hour programs a year, which is something I do in addition to my full-time day job. And other than technical producer Rob and Craig before him, there there is no staff. All all the writing and the researching and the archiving is done by me at my house. I have an office full of books and a basement that's crammed with CDs, records, tapes, magazines, clippings, and files. How many records and CDs? I've lost count. I'll get back to you on that by the end of the program, okay? Anyway, back to the subject of topics. Outside of a break in the summer and a few weeks of Christmas, I have to grind out pretty much one show per week, and it takes anywhere from 10 to 14 hours to do just one program, and that's the writing and the production. It has nothing to do with the research. That's on top of that. And and every week I get the same feeling. You know what it's like to sit down Sunday night to work on that essay or project or report that's due first thing Monday morning? (laughs) That's the feeling I get every week. The good news is that New Rock is such a vast, vast subject. There's always something interesting to explore. And I get a lot of suggestions from listeners, which is a great help. There have been shows on gay rock, drummers, bootlegs, crime, road trips to places like London and L.A., specific genres like industrial and emo and Britpop and all the flavors of punk, music videos, censorship, sampling. There was even a show on the relationship between New Rock and UFOs once. Over its 500 episodes, the ongoing history has, of course, profiled dozens and dozens of specific performers. In-depth histories on bands like U2, The Smashing Pumpkins, Oasis, The Chili Peppers, David Bowie, Radiohead, Nine Inch Nails, Kate Bush, The White Stripes, Green Day, Beck, Depeche Mode, R.E.M., Pearl Jam, Courtney Love, Blink-182, The Offspring. And whatever the topic, I like to find the stuff that no one knows about, or at least very few people know about. The weird twists of fate. The human side of things. This is the sort of stuff that not only makes music and performers and history make more sense, but it also makes this stuff come alive and somehow be more meaningful. And I love being able to get a grasp on on, on why things are the way they are. So what is my all-time favorite story? I get that question a lot. It's a tough one. Maybe it's learning that much of Bono's passion is rooted in everything that happened to him when his mother died when he was still in his teens. There's a good one about R.E.M.'s signature guitar sound being rooted in an issue where Peter Buck encountered a woman in a see-through shirt. Courtney Love's previous life as a stripper provided some yucks. Same with Sid Vicious, especially the story of how he was such a jerk that he managed to get beaten up by his own bodyguard when he was on tour. But if there's one story that surprises me the most, it was the one regarding the relationship between Joey Ramone and Johnny Ramone. 
Although these guys were in the same band, sharing stages and recording studios and rehearsal spaces and dressing rooms and cramped, dirty vans, they did not speak to each other for 15 years. Not a word. Why? Was it because Joey was such a liberal and Johnny was a hardcore Republican? Well, that didn't help, but it wasn't the story. The reason was, long, long ago, Joey's girlfriend, Linda, left him for Johnny, whom she later married. The tension and the jealousy was unbelievable, and it lasted more than 15 years. Sweet little girl, I want to be a boyfriend. The Ramones from 1976 and hearing that story about Joey and Johnny can't think of the song in the same way. Best interview? I've had the privilege of talking to a ton of really cool people over the years. The Ramones, U2, Bowie, Depeche Mode, The Pixies, R.E.M., Joe Strummer, The Clash, Trent Reznor, Green Day, R.E.M., Noel Gallagher, Dave Grohl, Robert Smith, Morrissey, Blur... But I think my all-time favorite interview moment was when Flea and Anthony of the Chili Peppers told the story of the first song they ever wrote together. I've never heard them tell this story anywhere else. I've never seen this in print. So have a listen. We actually, Flea and I wrote a song early on together in our career before we became the illustrious Red Hots. It was, uh, it was a song that we wrote just... Um, but um, the gonna... song that we wrote, the original song that we wrote, is we were, up, we were on a backpacking trip, Anthony and I. In the high Sierras. In the high Sierras, and we were sitting up, and, and we were very scared of the bears and because we saw a cave. Remember, we were so scared of the bears? A cave, yeah. And it was cold, and we thought that we were going to be eaten by bears, and we wrote this little song. And uh, shall we perform it? Okay. Boom. Then later on, we were in my, my uh, backyard in Laurel Avenue, and we decided and we wrote another verse for it. Temple flipping, blick, snort, gorgle, snork, all are of a certain sort. Hody, loady, hody, loady, bobbin, boo, wow, boom. Welcome back to this special 500th episode of the Ongoing History of New Music. 500 separate individual hour-long shows since we started doing this thing back in 1993. One area where things have changed drastically is technology. Like I said, the first program back in February of 1993 was written on a 286 computer with a yellow monochromatic screen and one meg of RAM. It ran a DOS word processing program called Q&A, and everything was backed up into five and a quarter inch floppy disks. And I still have those around somewhere. Can't read them, can't use them, but they're in the basement. The show itself was recorded on old school reel-to-reel recording tape. Any edits had to be made physically by cutting the tape and splicing it together with special splicing tape. And when we had to make copies of a show, we had to do it in real time. Research material was also pretty old school. Books, magazines, newspaper clippings, official printed biographies released by record labels, interviews, and all the music was taken from vinyl or CD or tape. We made a leap into digital when we started archiving old shows on that newfangled digital audio tape sometime in the middle of the 1990s, which was about the same time files were being backed up on three-inch floppies, which was a great leap forward. Today, production is almost 100% digital, using a couple of Apple G5s with dual processors running the latest version of Pro Tools. 
Files are transferred using a couple of different FTP sites, and finished programs are stored on dedicated network drives as well as on CD and other storage media. After Netscape made it easy for everyone to browse the web in 1995, a lot of the research moved online. Sure, the official ongoing history book library has several thousand physical books in it now, but the Internet is where most everything is at these days. Old scripts and sound files are stored digitally over a triply redundant computer network in my house, plus at the radio station. We're talking almost a terabyte, that's 1,000 gigabytes of material. Compare that with the first ongoing history computer, which had a hard drive capacity of 20 megabytes. You know what's weird? In another 10 years, a terabyte will be nothing. That'll be like, yeah, so... Speaking of technology, this show has tried to track its impact on music. There have been shows on the history of radio, the history of music videos. There was a long show on format wars, all the different ways we've had to store music from the Edison cylinder all the way up to the MP3 and the iPod. And speaking of MP3s, we track the whole file sharing issue as far back as the debut of the original Napster and all those very early technological developments. Remember the days when a lot of people believed that it was actually illegal? to manufacture and sell an MP3 player? Thinking back, it's hard to believe how slow the mainstream music industry was to embrace the concept of the MP3 and digital music files. Before high-speed access, it was easy to dismiss the threat. Dial-up used to be so slow that it took an hour to download a single song. Now it takes, what, a few seconds? And everyone is finally waking up to the fact that virtual music is here to stay. All right. Before we wrap up this 500th episode of the ongoing history of new music, let me answer some of the questions that I always get from people. Question number one, how many CDs, records, and tapes are in the official ongoing history music library? The answer is, um, I'm not really sure of an exact number, but I had to move once to accommodate everything. If that tells you anything. I would say there's somewhere around 8,000 vinyl records. There's a couple of hundred reel-to-reel recordings and some material on digital audio tape and probably close to 15,000 CDs. This is in addition to at least a, a thousand books and several thousand back issues of magazines like uh, there's Mojo and Q and Rolling Stone and Spin and all the rest of them. I, I buy a lot of magazines. And all this stuff takes up uh, about one quarter of, of the basement of this house I had to buy to accommodate it all. So question number two, you know those daily one minute bits that we run, how many of those are there? Um, let me see. It's 12.5 years times 365 days, so we're looking at approximately 4,700 different unique one-minute bits. Question, how many books have been spun off from this series? The answer is four. Run a search on Alan Cross on Amazon.com, and you'll see what's still available. A couple are in print, and you can get used copies of others. Will there be any more books? Uh, I'm not sure. Writing a book is a lot of work, and the payoff isn't very good financially. I once worked it out, and if you include all the time and effort that goes into a book and compare that towards the meager royalties that come back, the salary works out to less than 50 cents an hour. So with so, And with so many people automatically going to the net for music info, fewer and fewer people are willing to shell out bucks for a book these days. So what about CDs, then? I've helped compile about uh, 20 over the years, but uh, most are gone now. That's because when you license songs for a compilation, that license has a definite lifespan. That way artists can then go and relicense their songs to someone else. So there's a shopping hit. If you ever see any kind of compilation CD that you like, buy it then, because it will not be available forever. 
Email. What about that? Well, I get hundreds of emails a week now. I try to answer all of them, but it's really hard. But I do read every single one of them. So please keep them coming, whether they be good, bad, or indifferent. And finally, I get this question a lot. How long will you keep doing this? And the answer is as long as people seem interested. After 500 shows, it's it's a habit. And it's it's actually pretty difficult to stop. Besides, this isn't exactly a portable skill. Not a lot of demand for what I do in other environments, if you know what I mean. And that is the end of show number 500. I've already started on the next 500, and I hope you find them interesting, enlightening, thought-provoking, and entertaining. Thanks to Rob for producing all this stuff. Oh, and Craig back at the beginning. And Andrew every once in a while. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.